Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, we've been in a series uh, through the book of Colossians. It's just the second week. Uh, so kind of catch you up on what we talked about last week. Uh, in chapter 1 of Colossians, uh, Paul is adamant that uh, Jesus is Lord over creation. That is, that Jesus was an acting agent in the creation. Uh, but he also wants us to know that Jesus is Lord over new creation. Uh, that Jesus is also the acting agent, the initiator of that which is to come and that which is breaking in uh, the good news of Jesus Christ and of resurrection. Uh, and then we made a couple of implications out of that truth. The first one we talked about was a corporate implication. Uh, and we said that the church actually exists in this space uh, between creation and new creation. Uh, which is to say that uh, sometimes church life can be a little bit hard and messy and difficult as we kind of deal with each other's shortcomings and sin and all of that kind of stuff. That, that as we're in relationship with one another, it's the possibility that we can hurt one another because we live in creation. Uh, but we also bear the seed of new creation, which is good news, and that we are to embody this new creation life, not only to one another, but also to the world at large. Uh, so we made some corporate implications. We also made a personal implication, which is to say that we have been reconciled to God through Christ. And so since Jesus is Lord over creation and new creation, and we have been reconciled to God in him, then he is the center of our faith. And how easy it is to kind of make other things the center uh, and the core of our faith, but we're just a reminder from the Apostle Paul in Colossians that Jesus is the center of our faith. Now in chapter 2, we actually hear why Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Colossae. You'll remember that Colossae's kind of glory days as a city, as a main uh, stop on a trade route are kind of over, and Colossae's kind of starting to fall into uh, unimportance, uh, but there is a, a Christian community there that Paul cares deeply about. Uh, what's interesting is that Paul didn't plant the church, and he's never met the folks there, but his, his friend Epaphras uh, has planted the church, and, and therefore Paul Paul, through his friend, has a real concern and heart for this church. And the church is facing two pressures, and we actually learn about these pressures in chapter 2 in the portion of Scripture that we're going to read. Uh, and then we also hear Paul's encouragement or answer to the problem or the issue uh, that they are facing. Now, Paul never actually comes out right out and says it, but he does hint at the problem. Uh, so as we read our passage of Scripture, I encourage you to listen closely and see if you can hear uh, the problem that he's trying to address and then see if you can hear his response. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 6 through 15. It'll also be up on the screen, and, uh, or if you want to click there, that is fine too. So uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, uh, says this. So then, uh, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. 
In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Now when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with all of its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Christians in Colossae are facing pressures. Did you hear what they were as we read them? Look again at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The stated pressure that Paul gives us in the letter is what he calls hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now this admittedly could be any number of things, uh, but that's why we have biblical scholars and history buffs. And they tend to agree that there were two primary pressures that were facing these new Christians in Colossae. The first pressure was to uh, worship Jesus alongside of all the other gods. The second uh, was to observe Jewish law as a completion of their faith. Let's unpack each of these. The first, the temptation, the pressure to worship Jesus right alongside other gods. Uh, if you put yourself in the shoes of these new Christians, these new believers in Colossae, uh, then we would recognize that they, drew up, they grew up uh, Gentile, that is, not Jewish uh, which meant that they worshipped various Greco-Roman gods, gods like Hermes, the god of money, or Aphrodite, the god of love, or Apollo, the god of music. Uh, and each of these many gods that, that were kind of on their radar, that they were worshipping, uh, each of those gods was in charge of a different area of their life. So if you wanted your life to go well, then you had to do the hard work of keeping the gods on your side. <laughs> How would you like to live in a culture like this? Now, if you did a good job and worshipped all the various gods and did what was pleasing to them, then they were, obli ob they were obligated to bless you in the area of life in which they govern. Uh, the truth is, is it was a complicated system of keeping gods happy in order to keep your life together. Now, if you kind of understand that's where they're coming from, and then all of a sudden they come to believe that, uh, that, that uh, Jesus is the world's Messiah, then their Gentile friends would certainly say, uh, you believe in Jesus, that's fine, uh, but why don't you worship him alongside of all of these other gods? Which, in fact, if you put yourself in their shoes, made a lot of sense. I mean, what harm could be done by just simply adding another god to the lineup of gods that you are doing your best to keep on your side? What this ultimately meant is that for some Colossian Christians, Jesus was, in fact, just one more deity in a line of gods that governed different parts of life. Now, thankfully, we don't have this problem in our world and in our culture. <laughs> That's good. I was hoping you would chuckle there. <laughs> this temptation, this pressure, is as strong for us today as it was for them. Isn't it true that, 
Well, we may not erect gods and different statues, and we may not claim them or call them as gods. The reality is, is that today we want just as much to chase gods of wealth and power and materialism and sensuality, etc., etc., and then we just want to add a little Jesus to the lineup. And in these scenarios, Jesus is often seen, you know, if, if we see the Greco-Roman gods kind of oversaw these different areas of our life, then if, if we were to kind of move that into modern day, we might say that Jesus has been demoted from Lord over all of creation to in charge of the afterlife, right? Uh, it, we've kind of made Jesus the secretary of afterlife affairs, Which is to say that as long as I say the right prayer to Jesus, then I'm good to go. And I'm also free then to worship power and privilege. And in fact, what, what we often see is what better way to chase power, privilege, materialism, those kinds of things, uh, than to also chase them when I have Jesus on my side. Like if I can chase those other gods and then claim Jesus as well, then that seems all the better. But Paul has something really profound to us to say in the midst of these kind of social pressures. And it's actually an encouragement. It isn't, you can really hear Paul's pastoral heart here. He's not coming down with an iron fist, which he sometimes will do when necessary. But Paul has a real encouragement for us today. And the encouragement is this, both to the Colossians and to us, is he wants to begin by reiterating what he's been saying in chapter one, kind of on a loop. Uh, there's this thread that kind of traces through chapter 1 into chapter 2. Did you catch it? He wants to say to us that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. In other words, do you sense the, the, the argument that Paul is building? He's, he's talking to a bunch of folks who are, are pressured to just kind of add Jesus to a whole mix of other gods, uh, to put Jesus on your side. Uh, and what Paul is going to say to us is that, in fact, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of who God is. And so Colossians 2, 9, the verse that we read, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And then, did you catch it last week in chapter 1, verse 15? The Son is the image of the invisible God. That is to say that God, has that God has been invisible to the eye, but then Jesus Christ has made him visible to us. In fact, the Greek word translated image uh, is the Greek word, and you're not going to believe this, is the Greek word icon. <laughs> In other words, the, the passage literally says that Christ is the icon of the invisible God. That what, was, what once was invisible, God in Christ has made visible. And then just four verses later in chapter 1, verse 19, he, he pushes his point even further. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that is, Christ. And this is the idea that he re reiterates in our current passage, that the fullness of God's character and of God's purposes dwell in Christ. The fullness of God's character and God's purposes dwell in Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. That the fullness of who God is, is revealed in Jesus Christ. Many folks, Christians included, read the scriptures and form a Jekyll and Hyde view of God. 
that God has two sides to him, and as long as you stay on his good side, then you'll get the New Testament Jesus-y kind of God. Right? Uh, but if you get on the wrong side of God, then you're going to get the Old Testament wrathful and violent God. And I understand how this happens, but the Bible itself bears witness to the fact that God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. I want you to see that what Jesus is doing, what God is doing through Christ, is he's seeking to supplant a system where you had to keep all the gods happy in order that they might show their favor on you. And he's trying to show humanity through his love poured out on the cross as the one true God who reigns over all of creation, who is Lord over new creation, that I am already on your side. That you don't have to go through, you don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops to keep me happy, but I am already for you. I'm going to show that I love you. I'm going to take the initiative to pour out love upon you. Like, like if, if, if Jesus was just kind of entering into and continuing a system where you just kind of had to try to do your best to keep him happy, to keep him on your side, that would be the kind of, sort of good news. Right? But, but if we have a system where God is revealed fully in Christ, where God is showing us through his self-sacrificial love on the cross and taking the initiative in our lives that I am already for you, then that's good news. Amen? Sometimes we try to get this view of two sides of God, but Paul is very, very adamant. Three times, just in the first two chapters, God is like Christ. In other words, God looks like the grace, the mercy, the love, the nonviolence, the generosity, the gentle guidance, and the freedom of Jesus. Now, there are tons of implications for this, and for me personally, grabbing a hold of this truth and wrestling with it, wrestling with it honestly, has given me opportunity to let go of some views and opinions of God that I once held. I think it would be well worth your time to think and to meditate on Paul's words here that in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. But in front of us today, our task today is to begin to discover why Paul has re is reiterating this to the Colossians. So remember again, they were tempted to put Jesus in a line of other gods that they were to worship. And so in order to prevent this, what Paul is doing is he's making a distinction between Jesus Christ and the other gods of Greco-Roman culture. And what, in other words, to put it in more kind of modern terms, Jesus, Paul is essentially saying Jesus is not a demigod. You know what a demigod is? Uh, demigod was like totally out of our vocabulary until Marvel made Thor, right? And then we're all like, oh, demigod, we know what that is. Uh, but a demigod is, is a, a son of a god and a mortal, uh, which makes them kind of half human, half divine. And what Paul is emphatically saying here is that Jesus is not a demigod. Paul insists that Jesus is God made flesh. He is fully God and fully human. And as such, Jesus then, Paul's point is, Jesus cannot be added to a lineup of other gods, but rather our worship to Jesus must be primary. Our allegiance to Jesus must supersede all other allegiances. And our love for Jesus must inform and shape and drive all other loves. You with me? That's the first pressure. The second pressure 
was to follow uh, Jewish law as a way of adding to our faith, to the faith of these, these early Gentiles, these early Gentile Christians. Now again, I want you to put yourself in their shoes that by becoming Christian, this group of Gentiles were attaching themselves to a Jewish Messiah whom they were confessing as not just the Jewish Messiah, but the world's Messiah. And what this, this had really intense social implications. Uh, what this meant is if they, were, if they were confessing the Jewish Messiah as the world's true Messiah, these Gentiles were going to have to deal with the Jewish and Gentile social pressures. The, in, making that confession meant entering into some uncomfortable areas in which we don't exactly agree. <laughs> Yeah, you get it. And so, the, now the primary pressure was this: that uh, many of the Jewish Christians believed that the new Gentile Christians, these new ones trying to enter our group, <laughs> had to follow all the Jewish laws in order to be considered fully Christian. Uh, which was a way of saying this: that they felt strongly that anyone accepting Christ as the world's Messiah was going to have to become one of them in order to be in. Okay? Author and theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. Uh, this is a quote. Jewish zealots had, to, uh, had told the new converts that in becoming Christian, they had only got half of what they needed. What they now ought to do in order to complete the experience was to be circumcised and keep the laws of Moses. Let's just let the uncomfortable nature of that rest. <laughs> in order to kind of be in the in-group, this is what you got to do. And all the men were like, mm, not sure about that, right? Um, now, I don't think that many of you were tempted to become Jewish in order to complete your Christianity this week. Um, but there is probably a temptation on a regular basis to choke our faith with a set of rules. Uh, how about the negative rules? Those are all the things that you shouldn't do, uh, but sometimes you fall into anyway, right? You know you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, but uh, maybe in a moment of temptation or maybe you just were tired or this or that or, or you had a moment of bad judgment. I mean this, whatever this is, right? And it could be kind of all along a spectrum of, of sin, but, but it's just kind of like, I know I shouldn't do this and yet I did or I sometimes do and it's a real struggle. The rules, all the should nots. Uh, but then there's the positive rules that I think are, are probably for Christians just as real, right? Uh, and, and those are all the things that you should do. You ever, you ever felt like just with a, that you live under this cloud of all the things that you should be doing? Yeah, right? I mean, it's like, I know I should not do this and this and this. And sometimes it's like, okay, I got that. I'm not doing any of that. But, but then we also live under a cloud of all the shoulds. I should be doing this and this and this and this. And I need the shoulds and oughts and all of that. Uh, but whatever seems to happen, you don't have the energy, the time, the money, the expertise, the motivation to do so. And what ends up happening is our, our journey with, with Christ who has initiated love and has come to us and we have received that love. And then all of a sudden we just kind of choke that whole, the beauty of the whole thing out by a bunch of shoulds and should nots. You with me? Don't leave me hanging here. Maybe it's just me with the shoulds and should nots. But, 
Paul's advice is also found in, in chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, he, he says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. What a beautiful word. In fact, I, some people ask me, what is your life verse? I've never had one. I've never had a life verse. I think it might be Colossians 2.10. I, I love, because listen to, listen to the, the truths, the life-changing, radical, earth-shattering truths that Paul offers up in one verse. He says this, All the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Maybe it's just theology pastor nerds that get excited about that. But, but whoa, whoa. In Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought into that fullness. Paul's encouragement to the Gentile, to the, to the new Gentile Christians that are dealing with pressure to follow the Jewish law, and his encouragement to us that are dealing with a whole set of shoulds and should nots, is that you don't need Christ and a set of rules. That you don't need Christ and a set of shoulds. You don't need Christ and a set of oughts. When you have Christ, you have what you need. That's good news. Now, since the beginning of the letter, Paul has been trying to point us to this fullness of Christ. And I know this might get weird, but I want you to stick with me. Christ, Paul points out, was an active agent in creation. Christ is the acting agent and initiator of new creation. And then he says this, all things hold together in him. Christ is literally the glue holding all things together. And then he goes on to say that Christ is in all and all things live and move and have their being in him. And all the Protestant Christians who like to keep things nice, clear, neat, and tidy and in a box said, huh? Right? I mean, there's like, there, there is a level of mystery here that, that largely our faith tradition just isn't comfortable with. That in Christ, all things hold together. And Christ is in all, and all things live and move and have their being in him. As I was trying to think about, like, what does that really mean? And what is Paul trying to say as he says all of that right next to all this business about God, uh, God is revealed in Christ? What, how do you mash those two together? How do you match those two ideas? And here's what I came up with. God is at once unimaginably big, mysterious, unreachable, and unknowable. And at the very same time, God is specifically revealed and relatable and knowable in Christ. That one, what was once this, this giant mystery, unknowable, out there, unrelatable, has been made relatable and knowable and visible and relatable in Christ. Man, that's good news. And when you place your faith in him, you enter into this fullness. Singer-songwriter Matt Papa puts it this way. Come, 
behold the wondrous mystery. Right? Um, placing your faith in Christ, and I think I want to go further than that. I, I, I want to say like living genuinely in Christ is like stepping into a cathedral with its flying buttresses, with its stained glass windows, and just the expansiveness of all the space around you. And you just, you, you kind of enter into, like you walk through the doors of this, have you ever had this experience? The, the, the doors are closed to the cathedral. You open the doors, you step into this expansive beauty. Following Christ is a bit like that. Unless... You choke, choke it with rules, right? Like, like rules and legalism is like living in a small dark room with a low ceiling. But living into the fullness of Christ is like the world being brought wide open and expansive and full of light with beauty and awe and wonder. I've come to a place in my faith and in my journey with Christ that I'm, I love apologetics, I love explanations, I love theology, I teach theology classes. Um, but I think, I think we, we need to have that stuff, but we also need to have a sense in which following Christ is a bit like standing in a cathedral. That, that, we, that we, need, we need to grab a hold of, accept some of the the awe and the beauty and bring it back and not just try to explain everything down to its lowest common denominator, right? Well, it's my role and my job as a pastor is to try to connect the dots to your real life. Uh, so that's all nice and small, dark rooms and cathedrals. Okay, that's wonderful. Uh, what does that mean? This means that in Christ, you are more free than you could possibly imagine. Now, a lot of people take freedom the wrong direction. And they think, oh, I'm free to uh, live into all my sinfulness because I'm forgiven in Christ. That's not what I mean. In Christ, you are free to live into your true self. Your true humanity that was modeled for us in Christ, which is to say that in Christ you are more free than you can possibly imagine to love. You are more free than you could possibly imagine to forgive. You are free to speak words that give life. You are free to live with purity, free to be released from violence, free to step into generosity. That in Christ we are more free than we could possibly imagine to live into the things that will make us and form us and shape us in his likeness. Amen? And oh man, how we try to just add a whole bunch of stuff and we stack it on top and it's just like, it's like closing off the roof of a cathedral and you lose all the natural light and so then you can't see the stained glass windows and all of a sudden you're living in a dark room, right? And I'm so glad I'm saying all this after we opened the cupola. <laughs> it just, that metaphor would not work if there was a gigantic ceiling over my head, right? 
It's just like there, there's, man, how, how we tend to choke our faith with so many things. Well, Paul goes on to say, and I, I just can't preach this passage without addressing this. Paul goes on to say that he, being Christ, is the head over every power and authority. Jesus has, is the head over every power and every authority. Again, I mean, Paul is trying to elevate our view of Christ to, to, to levels that we largely aren't comfortable with. <laughs> I mean, we just, we like to keep Jesus just nice and tidy and kind of in our place. But anyway, he's, he's doing that. So Jesus has authority over all other authority. Jesus has power over all, every other power. And let me, let me end by saying this. In the ancient world, as in ours, ultimate power and authority was understood to be the power and authority that comes with military might. Uh, that those with the most military strength held and to this day still hold the most power and the greatest authority. But the scripture tells us that Jesus' power and authority is greater because it is that of a totally different kind. Listen to verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And as I was, as I was trying to think about what do I want to say about this, I, I just, again, turned to N.T. Wright and thought he can say a lot better than I can. So I want to, I want to quote from him. This is from a commentary on this passage written by a New Testament scholar and pastor N.T. Wright. He says this, and stick with me, it's a lengthy, lengthy quote. Uh, in the ancient world, instead of flags, they often had standards, which were military emblems stuck on poles. Uh, but they also knew how to celebrate triumphs over hated enemies and how to do so with maximum symbolic impact. In a world without electronics or printed media, victorious armies and generals would demonstrate to the folks back home what a splendid victory they had won by bringing back the spoils of war. Now this would consist of all the booty they had captured, a long and bedraggled line of prisoners, and if possible, right at the end of the line, the king of the nation that they had just defeated. And then at the climax of the party, that king would be ceremonially executed. Now, when the Romans crucified Jesus of Nazareth under a sign that said he was the king of the Jews, this was more or less what they thought they were doing. They hadn't thought that he was worth bringing all the way back to Rome because, after all, he hadn't been leading an army or a serious military revolt. But every crucifixion of a rebel king, even a strange king like Jesus, was another symbolic triumph for Rome, and hence in Jewish eyes for the power of paganism as a whole. Anyone looking at the cross of Jesus with a normal understanding of the first century world would think the rulers and authorities have stripped him naked and celebrated a public triumph over him because that's what they normally do to such people. Now blink, rub your eyes, and read verse 15 again. 
On the cross, Paul declares, God was stripping the armor of the rulers and authorities. Yes, he was holding them up to public contempt. God was celebrating his triumph over the principalities and powers, the very powers that thought it was the other way around. Paul never gets tired of relishing the glorious paradox of the cross, God's weakness overcoming human strength and God's folly overcoming human wisdom. I just don't know if I have anything to add to that. <laughs> Except to say that when we think about the kingship of Jesus, who is Lord over all of creation, who is Lord over new creation, we are not talking about your typical kind of king. We are talking about a king who displays his strength through self-sacrificial love and who goes to battle by way of forgiveness. For Jesus and God is not angry with us and we have to earn his acceptance to get him on our side. The truth of the today is that Jesus is already on your side, has initiated love in your life by way of the cross. And so... By Christ's forgiveness, you have been set free from the worldly powers and authorities, and you have freedom from legalism and rules, and you are more free than you can possibly imagine to live in the ways of Christ. May it be so. Not just for me or for you, but for all of us as a community as we pursue Christ together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and I'll lead us for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love that has been poured out on the cross. Thank you, God, that you do battle by way of forgiveness, that your fullness, the fullness of your character and your purposes are revealed in Jesus Christ. God, thank you that Christ has made God accessible to us. May we live into this truth. May we continue to explore the implications of this truth. And God, may the words that you have spoken to us and the encouragement that you have given to our hearts ring true, not just for today, but throughout the rest of the week as we go about all of our busyness and responsibilities. And Lord, help us not to live under the cloud of shoulds and should nots, but help us to live in the awe and the beauty and the expansiveness of a journey with Christ. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.